and welcome to Cannabis Grand Rounds, a production by physicians with advanced degrees in cannabis medicine. Your hosts, Dr. Lee Van Oker, Dr. Les Matthews, and Dr. Hal Altman, will offer unbiased medical cannabis education for healthcare providers and the motivated public. Our content is selected with the objective to fully explore cannabis as science and medicine and pledges to reflect current cannabis knowledge with no hidden agenda nor sponsorships. Welcome back to Cannabis Grand Rounds. It's for healthcare providers by healthcare providers. I'm here with my partner, Dr. Les Matthews. I'm Dr. Lee Van Oker, and we've been talking a little bit about negative effects of cannabis. And now I really want to hone in on special populations that could be at risk uh, for cannabis exposure, cannabis complications and such. So let's let's first talk about pediatrics because that was always the big concern with legalizing it and decriminalizing it. A colleague of mine in the ER at uh, University of Colorado pediatrician published a study not long ago when Colorado went to recreational cannabis and found that there was a 30% increase of unintentional overdose and exposure when it came to pediatrics when they legalized their adult use cannabis. So it is something to consider. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And I think that experience has been replicated in most states, if not all states, where the general population has gained wider access to cannabis. And the vast, vast, vast majority of those pediatric exposures are inadvertent. And they're simply a a result of carelessness on the part of the adult user, whether it be medical or recreational, in properly securing the cannabis product and preventing kids from getting access to it. And, you know, as we touched on earlier, a lot of these products come in a form that's appealing to children. It may look like a gummy or a brownie or a cookie or whatever. So it's very easy for a child to, um, you know, see this and, and ingest it. The other challenge is that, and again, we touched on this earlier, but the response of children to cannabis overdose is very different than adults. And while adults tend to get more animated and hyperactive, the opposite happens in children, and they tend to get more obtunded, somnolent, and so on. So presenting to an emergency room, it may be a difficult diagnosis for an emergency room physician uh, if there's not a clear history of the child actually obtaining and ingesting cannabis. So an an obtunded uh, child with uh, lower respiratory rate, uh, lower mental acuity, and this sort of thing presenting to an emergency room, um, you know, cannabis overdose has to be in the differential these days. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there are some laws, uh, and I know in Maryland, the um, edibles here are not allowed to be shaped like gummies or candies. They have to just be, you know, geometric shapes. And of course, um, 
you know, the packaging is another issue, which is crazy. We don't have things uh, here like cookies and such. But even in states that allow those type of edibles, you know, you look at a cookie and the dose, even for (laughs) adults, could be a problem. I mean, who eats a tenth of a cookie? And you can look at how much cannabis is allowed in the cookie. So there are some laws, I think, that um, can protect children and end users, even adults, by, you know, having uh, maximum amounts of THC allowable in uh, in those products. We know that the, the percentage of THC um, in plants even today is much higher than it used to be. So I think some of those laws can help protect kids, but you're absolutely right. You cannot... Um, you cannot leave it out. You have to treat it like it's a medicine. The same way you wouldn't leave alcohol out for a toddler uh, to try and take a drink of. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what's interesting is I once had a discussion with Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. She's one of the foremost um, pediatric cannabis experts in the country. And her feeling sometimes is that ER docs like myself, we might rush to kind of intubate these kids to protect their airways. But the majority of these children, even when they take uh, an overdose and they have a smaller weight compared to what the dosage is on any product probably don't need to be intubated. I I think, you know, we get nervous in the ER when we see a kid who's super, super sleepy. So are there long-term effects for these kids? Well, I don't know that we know that. Uh, You know, there certainly could be, but as you say, the, um, the vast majority of kids who are the unfortunate victims of an inadvertent cannabis overdose and who present to the emergency room can have a presentation that can be pretty worrisome to a uh, uh, treating you know, physician or, or practitioner, the reduced respiratory rate, somnolence, all that sort of stuff. But generally, as you say, supportive care is adequate. Uh, need for intubation is extremely rare. And usually these kids, when supported, will, will come through this and just do fine. Now, is there a longer-term issue in children who get repeated exposure to cannabis? There's certainly been some studies that suggest that that could be the case, and, and the, the risks are things like uh, becoming more likely to develop cannabis use disorder, having more personality disorders, and, and so on and so forth as, as they proceed through life. But again, I think the data on this is uh, still incomplete at best. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that in, later in another podcast. And those are probably adolescents that are really trying their best to get as high as they can get. But uh, I agree. I think these accidental exposures, even though, you know, when we see a kid not very, very sleepy, hard to wake up, we worry about their airway. Are they going to aspirate on something? And we kind of jump to do this. But according to Dr. Goldstein, and who is a pediatric ER doctor too, uh, consequently, she feels like sometimes, uh, you know, in the ER we'll jump to intubate and maybe we just need to watch carefully and monitor them. But certainly it needs to be treated like a medicine. And the fact that we, you know, there are some states that have edibles that are the shape of regular cookies and candies. I mean, it's we've seen inadvertent adult exposure that thought that they were just eating a regular chocolate chip cookie. So that's an issue. Anyway, I'd like to move on last to 
the elderly because um, some people, you know, 70% of the elderly have more than one chronic illness. Uh, they're the fastest growing segment, baby boomers, turning to medical cannabis for relief of things and especially pain, uh, which is a very common a very common complaint. I think like 74% of adults, older adults do complain of some type of chronic pain and they have been the segment that's moving to look for medical cannabis. I know in my own small practice, my average age is 85. So that tells you I've seen 90 year olds coming in for chronic pain that want to try cannabis that haven't gotten relief with other medicines. So what are some of the challenges that we really have to look at in the aging population with respect to medical cannabis? Yeah, I, I think the, the tenet of first being a good doctor uh, is probably the most important one to keep in mind. And, and what I mean by that is that an elderly patient population is much more likely to have any number of comorbidities, use of other medications, history of other illnesses, whatever, that may have the potential to significantly impact what they should be recommended to use and the effects or the outcome of using cannabis might be. And we can, you know, touch on a number of examples. Let's talk about uh, someone who may have some uh, balance problems or, or some arthritic uh, issues that make balance and gait and posture more challenging and throwing in uh, cannabis use could raise their risk of of falls and other injury to a higher level than what it might be otherwise. The risk of drug interactions does exist with cannabis. No, that's a good point related to falls because I always recommend that when they're first trying the medicine, uh, they try it when they're at home with somebody, I have a family member uh, stay with them. And, you know, it's the old adage, start super, super low and go up very, very slow. So falls is a definite risk for the elderly. And um, as a practitioner, I insist that they only try it if they're staying at a family member's house and they can be watched carefully at very low doses. And then you alluded to polypharmacy is a big problem with the elderly. Uh, I think there was a statistic that over 65, um, on average, um, most patients are taking four or more prescription drugs. So how does that impact them with cannabis? Well, I think it, it, it can significantly, and it depends on the drugs that they're on, but some of the most common drugs uh, you know, used by the elderly now, like statins, some anti-inflammatories, you know, all can have negative interactions with cannabis and need to be recognized for that potential. And in those situations, either cannabis should be avoided or certainly begun at a very low dose and monitored very closely for any risk of those um, side effects. Um, and and we, we talk about this often, but yeah, I, blood thinners exactly, too. That's another good one. But we talk about this often, but I don't think we can overemphasize it. And that is this um, issue that that particularly in the elderly, almost all of them are going to choose a route of administration that's oral. You see very few elderly patients who want to inhale cannabis. So again, this issue of the first pass metabolism and the delay in onset 
of the effects of the ingested cannabis are a significant risk factor for an impatient old person like me who might say, gee, this didn't work. I'm going to take more. And before you know it, again, you're in a in an overdose situation. Right. And you bring up a good point about the elderly because they're with any medication, you know, in, in pharmacology, we talk about atomy, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. And age is a big factor in that. So also the way any drug is metabolized in the elderly um, can affect them. And sometimes they're less efficient, there's less hepatic blood flow, or their distribution because of uh, we lose the, you know, lean body mass as we age. They're, they might have a different absorption because we lose gastric acid as we age. So all of these things, renal blood flow can be lower, so they might hold on to drugs longer. So those are all really important issues to think about that can affect the safety and efficacy of medical cannabis for seniors. So you bring up a very good point. Now the next special population is pregnancy use of cannabis in pregnancy, and also lactating uh, mothers. So, uh, Les, what are your feelings on that, and what does the research tell us? Well, again, I don't think that there's a large body of robust uh, research on the effects of cannabis uh, in pregnant females. Um, I know you found a study in a, in a unique population that suggested that the risk may be fairly low, but I, I think the the mainstream advice that uh, we should be providing to people with the level of knowledge uh, that exists right now is that if you're pregnant, don't use cannabis. And until and if there is better and more scientific uh, evidence to the contrary, I think that's the simple recommendation that, that certainly I would offer to anyone who was pregnant or contemplating or attempting to get pregnant and was using cannabis. Do you agree? Yeah, I do agree. Well, so first of all, I, you know what, even as a doctor, I have to say I'm a very anti-medicine doctor. I, I hardly believe in antibiotics. I can say my son's who's now like going to be 25, I can count on one hand less than five times when he was little that I gave him antibiotics, even though he had ear infections and whatever. So I'm a big anti-medicine person. And that's how I preface it with a lot of patients. And when I was pregnant myself, I, I wanted to take in the least amount of any kind of chemical um, at all. But I, you know, there had been some studies, there have been studies, even though we know less, a lot of the studies were, um, sort of slanted towards harm early on traditionally in this country for cannabis. But I think they did find there wasn't a lot of growth problems, prenatal issues with that, with exposure. I think some of the studies that we even learned about in school had more to do with executive functioning when kids get older. But in my opinion, the endocannabinoid system is very active uh, during development of the fetus, and we know that supplying exogenous, which it does pass through the placental barrier because it's a fat-loving molecule, THC. So if you take external cannabinoids, you know, it can depress your own endocannabinoids. So I think that's part of the issue. I agree with you. We're not there at the research. Like, you know, patients that definitely have seizure disorder, if they have a seizure when they're pregnant, 
you know, that's detrimental to the fetus. So there are some critical medical treatments that women can't avoid when they're pregnant and they somehow have to just take that. Whereas I don't think we're there with cannabis. But what's interesting about this study that you mentioned is um, in Jamaica back in the 90s, a healthcare professional was studying the Rastafarian children. And I was just fascinated by this study that uh, looked at mothers that were using it compared to non-users. And even these Brazelton scales that are go from birth to two months, these kids actually performed better with autonomic stability and reflexes on the Brazelton scale. And when they looked at sort of more developmental scores when they were four and five, it did correlate more with what was going on in the household. So even I think some of the studies we learned about with executive functioning when kids are older, you have to make sure there were controls for other things that the mother was taking like alcohol and tobacco and it was correlated to education level in the home and things like that. So I think, you know, I agree with you. I do not recommend it for any patients. I try and tell patients to avoid Tylenol, and that's the big drug that they use for women when they're pregnant. And now there's some new studies coming out about Tylenol. So, so who knows? But, um, you know, knowledge is power, and we need more information. The other issue to touch on in this uh, you know, subject is also breastfeeding, because it's my understanding that cannabis, when ingested by a breastfeeding mother, will appear in significant levels in breast milk, and uh, therefore also is another pathway by which a, a young child might become exposed to cannabis, perhaps even inadvertently. Yeah, I agree. Same thing with alcohol, right? We tell mothers try not to drink alcohol. If you're going to drink alcohol when you're breastfeeding, pump and uh, just discard it. So it is true. I mean, we don't have the definite issues that you can see like with fetal alcohol syndrome or in the old days when mothers smoked uh, when they were pregnant way back in the 60s and there were small weights and things like that. But I, I agree with you. I think we need a little more uh, research and study into it. And I'm of the ilk that, you know, it's only nine months if you can avoid taking any kind of chemical compound during that time why not do it for the good of your baby? And most mothers do feel that way too, I'd say. Um, let's just briefly uh, touch on um, in this topic, fertility, you know, especially there was always a big issue with male fertility and cannabis. What are your thoughts about does it impact fertility? You know, again, we, we say this often, and it's unfortunate but true, that the, the lack of good research and scientific um, evidence behind these uh, questions still lack. There is some evidence that cannabis can have a negative impact on male fertility. One study I read showed evidence of increased libido and decreased fertility, so they were going in different directions. And I think there's also a concern, a particular concern, in male patients who already have some level of infertility. So reduced sperm counts and so on. If you layer on cannabis into that picture, it can make it worse. So there are certainly some concerns about cannabis and its impact on fertility. We still have a lot to learn. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I did see a study in the Journal of Urology from 2019 that was a review article that looked at 48 previous studies, and they their conclusion is it may negatively impact fertility. So I think it is something uh, for listeners to consider, especially, you know, if they are uh, trying to sire children or, or that's where they are in their life. So to think about that ahead of time. Well, I think that'll conclude our discussion of uh, negative effects and special populations that might be at risk. Thank you for listening. This has been Cannabis Grand Rounds. Thank you, Lee. All information, material, and content on this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional and or medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment by a qualified physician or healthcare provider. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. Cannabis Grand Rounds LLC does not offer personal health or medical advice. If you have a medical emergency, call your doctor or call 911 immediately.